Well, good morning again, and it's good to see all of you. I just have a quick question to start off this morning, just to get us a little bit more comfortable. So how is your summer going? Has it been an opportunity for some of you to take vacations? You know, one of the things about social media and Facebook, you kind of can experience people's vacation, whether you want to or not. (laughs) Apparently this summer, I think a lot of people, their favorite place to go apparently is Hawaii. So I see all these pictures of uh, shave ice and malasadas, and they're just tempting me. So stop it. (laughs) Uh, I'm kind of excited because, you know, I kind of have half my mind here and half my mind somewhere else because I actually go on vacation tomorrow morning. And I get to go on one of my favorite places uh, in all the places in the world. We go camping, and we actually go into Yosemite National Park, and it's one of my favorite places to go. And so we're going to enjoy a week there, so I look forward to that. Well, before I get into this morning's message, I want to kind of just pause for a moment, just prepare our hearts and our minds for what is to come. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to come this morning to praise you, to thank you, and ask for a couple of things. May you open our eyes now so that we may see what you want us to see. And I ask now that you would open our ears so that you can help us to hear what we need to hear. We thank you, Lord, for your love, the love that sent your Son so that we may be reconciled to you, so that we may have eternal life. So we thank you, Lord. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. I say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, currently we're in a series that we've called A Hero's Journey. And each week we look at a person in a Bible who, who personifies one of the ten core values of Christian Layman Church. Here at Christian Layman Church, we have a vision that we want to have be a church that has compassionate outreach, just like we were talking about in our eye screening. We want to be a thriving community, and we also want to be a place where there is a discipleship culture. And for us to have those kinds of things happen in our church, we have to live out some of our core values. And as a church, we identify 10 of them. And for discipleship culture, there are about three or four values that we have that kind of supports that. Now, values are important. The reason they are important because values actually cause us, actually they motivate us to do things that we want to do. And a lot of times they may be conscious or unconscious, but these values will force us to do things that we are going to naturally want to do. Here, last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the value of Scripture, about biblical teaching, and that's one of the core values of our church. And he used from the Bible King Josiah as an example of a person who personified that value of valuing God's Word. And this week, our purpose this morning will be to look at another value that supports discipleship culture. And that is having a passion for Christ. And how does that practically look like? Well, this morning, I'm going to have us look at a man in the Bible. He's going to be our hero for this week. We're going to look at Nicodemus in the, in the book of John. And that before we go into the Bible, I want us to look at a, a, a diagram. And I think we have it. And it's a diagram of a kind of a spiritual plan that we have for our church. It's a plan to help grow us as a church and as individuals. It's taken from uh, James Chong's book, Real Life. 
you can see that little timeline there that shows a, a continuum from being a skeptic to a world changer. Everybody, every person in this room, in the world, can be placed somewhere on that continuum. And for us this morning, we're going to look at Nicodemus. And he has a particular spiritual journey that we're going to see from the start of John and going to the end of John. And he starts essentially as being a seeker. And later we'll find that he's pretty much a follower now. And maybe even a leader in the early church. And this, again is what we call our fusion plan. And so I introduced to you, and maybe I'm reintroducing it to you, but this is something that we want our church to, to be a part of because it's very important for us to grow together. And without a plan, we can't grow together well. So this morning, we're going to look at a passion for Christ. And so what is a passion? Well, it's defined as an ardent, adoring love. An ardent, Another word for ardent or synonyms, synonyms for ardent is to be intense, enthusiastic, fervid, or devoted. It means you're pretty, you know, on fire. And in this particular case, if you have a passion for Christ, then you're going to be on fire for Jesus. And so a question I want to begin this morning for you to reflect on, something to uh, mull over as I go through my message, and maybe even during your quiet times this week, a question to challenge you. Do you have an ardent, adoring love for Jesus? Well, Nicodemus' spiritual journey, as told in the book of John, begins in John 3. And we start with verse 1 through 21. And in this scripture passage, we're going to see demonstrations of how Nicodemus has a passion for Christ. Starting with verse 1 in John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I want to emphasize here, this is almost a well-known verse. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Again, anything that is repeated twice is something to be noted. Jesus says here again, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Here, the power of the Spirit is mentioned here through a comparison with the wind. The wind goes wherever the wind wants to go. Essentially, the wind is uncontrollable. And so the Holy Spirit has that kind of power. And a kind of birth that comes from the Holy Spirit has also that power of being uncontrollable. And what is uncontrollable is also eternal. So how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. 
How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. A little context here. Jesus is referring to an Old Testament story of Moses when uh, the people of Israel were in Exodus and they were wandering around in the desert. They were being, just as they were uh, naturally uh, to be, they were rebellious, and God had to punish them. And he sent a plague, he sent serpents, and they bit them at these poisonous stakes, and the people were going to die, but God gave them a remedy. And he had Moses create this uh, bronze snake, and he lifted it up on a staff, and he told the people, if you look at the snake, you will live, essentially trusting God to relieve them of their, their curse. And so the people who did look at that snake, they lived. And this is here, Jesus using that to forecast himself being lifted on a stake on the cross so that whoever looked at him would trust in God's remedy for their consequences of their sin, which is death, to look on Jesus and trust him as their Lord and Savior, then they will live. Just a little side note here, that bronze snake on a staff, that's actually the symbol logo for medicine today. So that's where its roots are from, is from the story of Moses. So what follows these scripture verses is a very well-known passage that everybody is pretty much familiar with, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. You see them at football games. People hold up the sign, John 3, 16. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And that is the word of the Lord. It's kind of curious here that Jesus kind of talks to Nicodemus, and he says, men don't like the light. And apparently Nicodemus comes in the dead of night to see Jesus. And in some ways, you could see Jesus might be poking a little uh, at uh, Nicodemus here, of wanting to come in the dark and not to be seen. Because sometimes when you're in the light, things are exposed about you. The first evidence that Nicodemus has a passion for Christ as seen in this scripture is that for his own credit, Nicodemus does come to Jesus to ask him his questions. And in return, Jesus gives him spiritual direction. In this first scene, we see Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus. He comes in the dead of night, and he comes with questions. And, and you have to realize Nicodemus is a religious man. He's very intelligent. He's a leader of one of the most powerful sects uh, of religion in the Jewish faith. He, he's searching for answers, though. He's well-learned. Actually, people come to him for advice, but he is searching. He's lived his life to a particular code of conduct, but something still irks him. He's missing something. 
and he's searching and he's coming to Jesus because in his experience of what he's heard from Jesus and what he knows about Jesus, Jesus has been saying things, teaching things that have been been uh, truthful. And so there's some questions that Nicodemus has, and he comes to Jesus searching for answers. Now, why does he come in the middle of the night? Now, some say he's trying to avoid being seen with Jesus, because Jesus is a controversial figure now in these times. The Pharisees, the other religious leaders don't, don't acknowledge Jesus as a leader. They consider him a traitor, a heretic. And so Nicodemus, some say, are, coming, are saying that he's coming to Jesus now because he just doesn't want to be associated with Jesus and be seen by his peers. That's one interpretation. I find a better one is that Nicodemus is actually wanting to have one-on-one time with Jesus right now. That all day, Jesus has been ministering to a lot of people, and a lot of people are crowding around him. And there aren't too many opportunities just to have a face-to-face with him. And so Nicodemus, wanting to have his questions answered, to have precious time with Jesus, comes when he thinks that Jesus will be alone. And so that's kind of an example for us. How often in our quiet times, when we're alone, that we actually turn to Jesus and ask our questions. And so when Jesus comes, he, he looks to Jesus for this particular question. How can a man be reborn? And you know, you've heard, heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, Jesus here says, you can. He tells them, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And and this is something that Nicodemus really wants. He wants to have a life with God. He's, He's a religious man. He's been devoting his life. But what he's been taught, what he's been familiar with, isn't quite right. There's something missing. And Jesus is telling him right now what he needs to know. You need to be reborn. And this is shocking news to Nicodemus. For his worldview, this is going to be costly. This is actually kind of frightening. At first, Nicodemus seems to be asking this question from a literal sense. That when he says, uh, when he hears Jesus say, you need to be reborn, his words are reflecting that how can a man physically be reborn? Can he actually go back into his mother's womb and be born again? So that's actually kind of funny. Of course, that's not possible. But slowly, Nicodemus kind of gets it, that Jesus, as he's continued to talk to him, realizes he's talking about spiritual things, right? He says, I'm talking about earthly things. How can you understand spiritual things, heavenly things? So Nicodemus starts to make that shift that Jesus is talking about being spiritually reborn. But even then, Nicodemus is kind of upset because for him to be reborn spiritually means he's at a pretty high place now. He's, he's a leader among his religious peers. He's one of the top 72 religious leaders in the, in the ruling council. Here, he is being told by Jesus, you got to start over. You got to begin anew. You got to do a do over. And that's something worth it for you, Nicodemus, because if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, 
You're going to have to be reborn. So, my question for all of you. When have you had to do a makeover? When have you had to stop and start over again? Sometimes it could be something you look forward to, right? This is August, you know. Summer's almost ending. School's going to start pretty soon for a lot of our kids. And maybe some of, some of you. And, you know, the, the transition from uh, one semester to another, from one school to another, is the summer vacation. But after you come back, right, a lot of times when you're a kid, you actually may have grown a few inches. Maybe you have a new haircut. Maybe the glasses came off and the contact lenses went in. The braces came off. So it's actually something you look forward to. You're actually kind of a new person. So whatever you did the last year, you actually have a new start. You can actually reconform yourself and maybe be a different person coming in the fall, right? That's actually something to look forward to. Or how about when you move into a new house? There's fresh carpet, new fresh paint. Everything's clean. It's a new beginning. That's exciting. Or there are stages in life, right? When you get married, that's a, a new time in your relationships. Or you have a child. That's an exciting part of life. But unfortunately, not all makeovers, not all stop and start agains are pleasant. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes they're not easy. And Nicodemus is going through one of those experiences of having to stop and start over again. When I ask this question to some of you, maybe some of you have gone through a layoff and you have now had to start a new career. Or maybe academically, there was some failure in in a particular class. And I remember guys that I went to school with who wanted to be in the healthcare field. But if you can't pass organic chemistry, you're dead. And so now they're accountants. So career changes happen because of certain academic failure. Um, whenever I do research for my messages, I often turn to my wife because I ask her these particular questions and see how she answers. And she answered this question, have you ever had to do a uh, start over? And this is the answer that she gave to me. She shared of about a relationship start over. Before she she, uh, was dating me, uh, the guy before me, he he was not a Christian. Uh, He was a... He hadn't rejected the God. He said he was seeking after God. Uh, and Terry, being a woman, a godly woman, a woman of strong faith, gave him a chance. And as they were dating, as the relationship progressed, she had to make a kind of mid-course adjustment because this guy was not making any progress in making a commitment to, to Jesus. And so Terry had to make... Uh, a very difficult decision. I'm sure she prayed over it. She went to Jesus and asked for his counsel and in her quiet times. But emotionally, uh, it was a difficult question, uh, difficult decision for her to make. And she decided to stop the relationship, to end it. Uh, not easy, because any of you who have been in dating relationships, it's very hard to end something because it becomes... Um, something that's convenient becomes something that you like. The guy's a likable guy, but he was lacking in one thing. So Terry had to make that decision to stop and start over again. Now, to 
to her benefit, the next guy was me. So <laughs> the rest is history. Uh, Nicodemus went to see Jesus with his questions. And Jesus told him to stop and be reborn. And that's a hard thing for Nicodemus to do. But he wanted something that he didn't have. And that was to be in the kingdom of God. To be uh, in heaven with Jesus. And he got his answer and he was changed forever. And encounters with Jesus will do that. Jesus can ask us to do hard things. Not easy things. But sometimes... These things are necessary. But when he tells us to give up these things, can you do that? And that's my question right now. Do you want to spend time with Jesus to ask him for spiritual advice? Do you want to start over and be reborn again? Jesus invites you to do that. The next scene we take from the book of John that demonstrates that Nicodemus has a passion for Christ. We can find this in John 7, verses 45 to 52 starting with verse 45 in chapter 7. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Here, um, the opposition to Jesus were the Pharisees, and they were sending guards to go arrest Jesus. But the guards went, and they didn't actually bring him back because Jesus had such an aura around him. He had such influence that he was speaking such truth that these guards were convinced that Jesus was the real deal. And so they couldn't arrest him. So they just came back empty-handed. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. So the, the Pharisee leaders were telling the guards, you must have been deceived if you didn't bring him here. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that the prophet does not come out of Galilee. So here, Nicodemus, demonstrating he has a passion for Christ by sticking his neck out now, to defend Jesus among his peers. He's telling the Pharisee leaders, how can you condemn Jesus without hearing him first? Now, you have to realize Nicodemus is a Pharisee himself. As I said, he's part of two of the most powerful um, ruling religious sects of that time, of the Jewish faith. One being the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees are a group of people who uh, are very powerful, very wealthy, very rich, very influential people, and politically strong. Their difference with Jesus is that they don't believe in a resurrection of death, or a resurrection after death, a resurrection of bodies. They also believed that it was okay to have business or have a marketplace in the temple. It was the Sadducees who brought the money changers and uh, the merchants to the temple courts, and that's where we had that scene where Jesus was upset with that and he threw them out. The Sadducees was the uh, party that, that was uh, responsible for that. Nicodemus is part of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are very conservative, very strict, very legalistic, very traditional 
sect of the Jewish faith. And um, the Pharisees, different from the Sadducees, did believe in resurrection after life. So they did res- believe in the resurrection of the dead. But they rejected Jesus as being the Messiah because Jesus um, didn't believe in all of the Jewish traditions. And also, Jesus, uh, to his discredit, according to the Pharisees, hung out, hung out with sinners. And according to Pharisee customs, if you hang out with people who are sinners, then you become unclean. So Jesus kind of poo-pooed that, and he hung around Jesus and didn't have that concern. And that was some of the major reasons why the Pharisees rejected Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were um, primarily, they, they were the two parties that made up what's called the Jewish uh, council, the ruling Jewish councils. And there are 72 people on that council. And to give you an idea of what this council did, it's kind of like today's Supreme Court. Cases would come before them and they would rule them. They were kind of like judges. And so Nicodemus is described in scripture as being one of the 72 on this council. So he's a pretty powerful man. And here, this council is now judging Jesus and prepared to condemn him. And then Nicodemus, among his peers, sides with Jesus and defends him by saying, how can you, does our law condemn, condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? So when he immediately says that, the suspicion is on him because the other Pharisees look at him and said, are you from Galilee? Are you from where Jesus is? Are you one of Jesus's people? And they continue to kind of incorrectly teach from scripture. They say that a prophet uh, or the Messiah will not come out of Galilee. And there's some truth to that, but they're also not um, confessing that Yes, Jesus did come from Galilee. That is where he primarily grew up. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And these teachers of the law, these Pharisees who are experts, knew that. They knew that a Messiah, as prophesied in Scripture, would come out of Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And here Nicodemus was challenging them, saying that, How can you condemn this man? In some ways, he was actually maybe projecting himself in Jesus' place. Because by siding with Jesus, the Pharisees were beginning to look at him and began condemn him by saying, you are not one of us anymore. And this is kind of a thing that we have with the grace that we, if we follow Jesus, that one day all of us will come before the judgment chair. And then Jesus will be also our advocate. And he will say the same thing to God. How can you judge this man by the law without hearing first what he has done? So some of you take sides, right? How many of you have a favorite sports team, right? Many of you do. Uh, Some of you have favorite colleges, right? It's the colleges that you went to, your alma maters. And part of the custom of going to your universities or having a favorite team is wearing sports gear, right? You have caps, you have jerseys, you have t-shirts with the logos, emblems, or your sports teams, or, or your colleges that you went to. 
Um, one of the weird things, you know, I'm from Cal Berkeley. My kids are, went there. And, and one of the things that when you're kind of away from the campus, you forget something. When you go to back to the campus, you look at everybody, and they're all wearing the same thing. It's kind of freaky. You don't see that in the marketplace. You don't see that in the business world. But when you go to a college university, everybody's wearing the same logos of T-shirts, and it's a little bit weird. And so if you don't wear one, you kind of stand out among thousands, whatever, 30,000 people on a campus, right? And so when you go to football games, sports games, right, you wear uh, the school's colors. And I know at Cal football games, generally you wear blue and gold. And if you are, you fit in. Now, if I wore a particular color, what will happen if I walked into, exactly, there's a cow guy here. They will be yelling at you, take off that red shirt. I mean, it's, it's universal. And I remember one time I, I made a mistake. Uh, I dressed my daughter in a red coat and took into a game. And, and as I was walking campus, that's where I realized, hey, everybody's blue and gold. Oh. And, you know, for girls, they love red, red colors. And so I had to quickly go into the bookstore, buy her a T-shirt, <laughs> to change her into out of her red shirt. Because I didn't want to have her to have the embarrassment of having, whatever, 50,000 people yelling at her and saying, take off that red shirt. Now, being identified with certain groups can be a problem, right? And that's what we do when we have favorite sports teams, when we have favorite colleges. But sometimes when we identify ourselves with particular groups, it can be dangerous. And if you've been following the news lately, right, in the Middle East, there's Christians in Iraq who are being persecuted severely. People who are asked to, to um, give up, to, to reject Jesus and turn to Islam. And if they don't, a lot of them are being beheaded cruelly. Women, children, and men. Here in America, we don't, we don't experience that kind of persecution. We don't have people coming up to us and asking to reject Jesus. But we do have a problem here in America about being Christians. There's a, a survey that was uh, done by David Kinneman and his group from Barna Research. And he wrote a book called Unchristian that a lot of Christians are being considered, considered by the public as being unchristian that we don't really behave in Christian-like ways. And the top three things that Americans look at Christians as being, they call us hypocritical, they call us judgmental, they call us homophobic. That's the top three, uh, like 70 to 80% of millennials, the ages 20 to 30, they view Christians as those three things. At least 70 to 80%. And then what's even more tragic, that even young millennials in the church, 50% of them answer the same question and say, even being Christians themselves, they say that Christians are hypocritical, judgmental, and homophobic. That's 50% of our young people. So we have a negative perception as being Christians. And anytime we identify ourselves as Christians, we get lumped into that, that perception, no matter how we behave, that's what we have to overcome. 
And a lot of us, you know, genuinely want to be liked by our peers. We want to be liked by our neighbors. We want to be liked by our co-workers and our relatives and our family members. We don't want to get hassled. So a lot of times, we won't confess to them that we're a Christian. But instead, we'll keep our faith underground. And we keep it a secret. Yet Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And that is a question that all of us need to wrestle with. Following the example of Nicodemus, can you identify yourself as a Jesus follower, even if it isn't popular? And even under a sword that's going to chop off your head, Will you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because the promise is, if you don't, Jesus and God will not acknowledge you. In the book of John, Nicodemus makes a third appearance. And we find this in John 19, verses 38 to 42. And the scripture says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews... With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. And here's our man, our hero, appearing again. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, or aloe, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Here, we see a third example of Nicodemus having a passion for Christ. He essentially abandons playing it safe, and he helps bury Jesus' body at a cost to himself. Nicodemus is apparently now a fully committed follower of Jesus because he's dealing with essentially the funeral for Jesus. When we go to funerals, pretty much the people that show up are the closest friends and family members. Here, Jesus is being cared for by both Joseph and by Nicodemus, and they are risking their safety to do this. Because it's recorded, so apparently somebody saw them. And I think a lot of people are actually watching. So it's pretty hard not to be noticed to be going to Pilate and asking for permission for Jesus' body. I'm sure people saw that. And I'm sure people went and saw them take the body. And then I think I believe that people actually saw them prepare his body with all those spices and then go bury him. And then for... Nicodemus, apparently, he took 75 pounds of spices. And those spices are not cheap. That's pretty expensive. And that's a lot of spices. So it cost uh, Nicodemus financially to get those spices. So from this evidence, we can pretty much make a case to say that Nicodemus now is all in for Jesus. Now, so what are some of your passions? Now, we all should have some passions. 
And by now, many of you probably know some of my passions. And a couple of them, one of them is, is, is basketball. You know, even at this old age, I still play. And, and, and it's a game that I love. Now, yeah, that's a picture at one of our retreats. And that's not bad for a guy closing in on 60 years old, right? Um, and besides basketball, one of my other passions is, is fishing. You know, for me, every fish I catch is always still a, a great thrill. And, you know, one of the amazing things about fishing is you never know what's on the other side of the line because it's underwater. And, you know, there's the moment of truth when the net goes in the water and, and, and picks out what's, what's coming out. And so recently, uh, uh, a few months ago, I went in Canada and we had a, a trip with my cousins and we went fishing for salmon. And, yes, I did catch a salmon. It was uh, a, a decent-sized one. It was actually the only fish we caught. And... Uh, my cousins are kind of novice at it, and my passion is not only fishing, but to catch fish. So when, like, when we had the fish on, uh, I jumped and went to get the pole because I said, I'm not going to lose this fish. <laughs> and it ended up being the only fish we caught. But that's, that's a couple of my passions. And, and, and you know, when, when you are passionate about something, even though my body might ache, maybe there is a risk of injury and I can't do what I can do when I was younger, I still do it because I, 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 I still love it. And I go fishing, and I love to sleep. I like to sleep in. But fishing, you've got to get up pretty early. It's some ungodly hour, like 4 in the morning, to go out and to go fishing. And, and I will do that because I am passionate about fishing. But here the question for me is like Nicodemus, are you prepared, if you have a passion for Christ, to go all in, to, to give everything you have and surrender to Jesus? Will you give your time, your abilities, your finances, and maybe even your life if you have that passion for Christ? So why would anyone have such a passion for Christ that could cause one to give up one's own life? Well, I don't know if you folks have had any problems in your house, but this summer has been kind of a, um, a real battle with ants. Uh, maybe because of the drought, they're all looking for water. And so they're going into the closest place that will have water. It's a lot of times it's our homes. So I know I've been uh, trying to fight them with, uh, with uh, these... Uh, Bait, ant baits. And, and one thing that, that I have to admire ants, they are passionate. Because they, they are wired to scavenge for food and water. And so they'll go after that bait, that liquid bait that I put out. They'll go for it, and they're gorging on it because that's how they're wired. They're passionate for scavenging. And to their credit, they're really good at it. But I'm dependent on that because they're going to eat that poison that's laced in that liquid bait, and they die. But their passion drives them to that. But that passion will also cause them to die. And so is it for Christians to also have that kind of passion? Where sometimes that passion may lead us to actually to our death. But... You know, Jesus doesn't ask us to die. He asks us to be reborn. 
And that's a critical gift that he gives to us is that we can start over again. There aren't too many offers like that, but Jesus does offer it. And, and, and to be able to go that far, to give up things that we like, to give up our comfort, to give up things we're familiar with, we can't do those things unless we know who we are. It comes out of our identity, of who God created us to be. We can't do these things to achieve that rebirth. Jesus did it already. He went to the cross. We can't earn it. All we have to do is just trust in him. And then out of that trust, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, will transform us. He transforms us into a new person with a new identity. And then, like I said before, we do things because of who we are. It is values that are then natural to us to do things. Not because we want to do them. It's impossible for us to do these things. We only do this because we are of a new identity. And this new identity is one through Jesus Christ. And with that, we would do things that would not come naturally unless we are reborn. When we are a baller, we will hoop. When we are a fisherman, we will fish. And when we are Jesus followers, we will have a passion for Christ. And if we have a passion for Christ, we will spend time with him, with our questions. We will go to him for counsel. We will uh, identify ourselves publicly when it isn't very popular. And we will surrender all to him, even it means our life. Because we have an adorant, an ardent, adoring love for Jesus. And I started um, this morning with that question, and I want to end with this that question. Do you have that ardent, adoring love for Jesus? So let's pray. Father God, that is my wish. That is my prayer for all the people here, your children. For those who are seeking for a better answer, I pray that they will learn to have that great gift that you give to us, and that is your son Jesus. And it's only through him, once we respond to committing to him, that you will transform us so that we would respond in love to you and call us to do, and for us to be able to do what you have called us to be. So through that identity, I wish that for all my brothers and sisters here, and may they know the blessing of what it means to live a life with passion. So I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.